0: Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice podcast by Snap Projections, episode 6. I'm your host, Pavel Berminsky and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Jason Pereira. Jason is a senior financial consultant with Woodgate Financial Inc and IPC Securities Corp and apparently is one of the most respected authorities on financial planning, the industry and most recently, financial technology. He's a graduate of the Schulich School of Business MBA program, where he now teaches classes in financial planning. Apart from that, Jason has also been awarded seven industry designations, including the CFA, CFP, RFP. He has won and been named as a finalist for several industry awards and is Canada's only two-time winner of the Plan Plus Global Financial Planning Awards. In addition, Jason holds a diverse number of other positions, including various board positions, his own tech startup, and has recently launched his own podcast called FinTech Impact, which I'm sure we'll get to. Jason, welcome on the show. Thank you. When, you. when you say all that, I, I actually start to feel tired just hearing it. <laughs> There's a lot of things. Yeah, so there are a lot of initiatives <laughs> yeah. and projects you're involved with. So this is going to be an exciting conversation. So let's jump, uh, jump right uh, into it uh, and start with your business. So tell me about your firm. So what do you do? What kind of services do you provide? And who do you do it for? So we really
1: see ourselves as evolving or having evolved into a multifamily office space. Uh, Now, that being said, that can mean a number of things to a lot of people, but I think our target niche is somewhere in the neighborhood of between let's call it one to 20 million roughly. Uh, Most of our clients tend to be within the one to 10 million space. It's a partnership of three advisors and seven people total in the the firm. And really what we do is we try to take away every financial bit of pain that the client has and expand to other services. So um, that has all the conventional things That includes all the conventional things you would think of. So we start off with a very deep financial plan, uh, and we've won awards for it. So we can we can definitely say that it is second to none. Uh, we basically make sure that we fully understand the client, have outlined their goals, directed them as to what they uh, how to how to best implement their their ideal solution in in order to get them to their goals and essentially have that roadmap in place for them. Uh, Then really that's, that's the heavy lifting part initially, but the most important part is what happens afterwards, which is the execution. So we break up our, our, our process into different modules just to keep make it digestible. So the financial plan is delivered in one meeting. The next meeting is an investment review where we basically say, now that we have the financial plan, here are the different goals you have, here's the different accounts we're going to use to service them. And here is the target portfolio for each of those different goals. So we may have multiple portfolio types depending on the individual goal. And then we actually do something a little bit different. We have a collaborative discussion about various solutions. So we'll, we'll give them at least three options. Uh, typically, a low-cost ETF portfolio, a mid- cost, mutual fund portfolio, and then a UMA platform that involves stocks, bonds, ETFs, mutual funds, whatever the best solution is at the time. All three of them have different price points. We charge the exact same thing for them. And essentially, the key here is to have a discussion with the client about merits of each strategy. And that is different than us just simply telling them what to do. And we started doing this because clients were coming in with their own biases and ideas about how they wanted to invest money. So being able to have a collaborative discussion has led to much more buy-in from the client to whatever recommendation we make. So that's the second part of the process. The third part is to do what we call the risk management review. We look at their insurance situation and we look at it from a pure risk standpoint. We don't look at tax planning or estate planning at this point, just what happens if X happens to you now to your family. And we look at all the traditional things such as life, health, disability, critical illness, long-term care. But we also look at longevity risk, uh, health, dental, travel, out of country coverage. If you want to, if you didn't want to wait for OHIP or whatever province you're in to take care of it. And also some general best practices on, um, on general insurance altogether. So that basically helps them. We we do a needs analysis, a probability analysis and show them what the gaps are and then have a discussion with them about where their risk budget should be spent as opposed to trying to get everything taken care of because frankly, it'd be too expensive. Uh, The next step is a tax plan review where we spend about 80% of the time educating them as to how taxes work in Canada and what we've done to date reminding them of, hey, the RSP, these contributions are saving you X number of dollars in tax. It's deferring X amount of dollars in tax. Uh, tax, you know, The TFSA is saving you this much money in tax and showing them just how effective their current plan already is. Mm-hmm. And then we look at, depending on the client, anywhere between three to a dozen different other more advanced strategies uh, that would, play, would come into play with them, or it would be that might be of interest to in them. So if they're interested, we will execute on that. Jason, so this is the first meeting still or this is the second? No, no, no. Sorry. Just to be clear, each of these meetings has been different. So we have a five meeting standard process. So this is meeting four at this point. Okay. Then once that's done, meeting five, we basically look at, and actually let's go a step back. So step four in the tax plan review, we will look at insurance from a tax planning standpoint. And then meeting five, we basically do our estate planning review, which is the uh, review of their wills and power of attorneys to ensure they're in order, make remind them of what's in there because oftentimes people forget what's in there. And then if anything needs to be redrafted, we work with them to come up with um, with a structure for how the Will should or the estate should proceed. And we will draft a memorandum that basically outlines who does what, who gets what, uh, and essentially has all that ready in all the ducks in a row. So when we sit down with an estate lawyer, everything is done essentially. Um, and we also look at, of course, the estate tax liability and discuss options for how they want to deal with it, which are pretty straightforward. You're either going to either A, pay for it, or B, have the insurance pay for it. So uh, we look at those options. But once that's all done, then we it's basically a matter of reviewing the plan so we will update any changes to the plan that were made through the course of our process to give them a new up-to-date plan and then we we make sure that for the next three to four years we are implementing the goals outlined in that and making sure everything stays on course uh, if a major life event happens or if we get to about a three to four year time with timeline then we we start the entire process all over again excellent so yeah it's a very much a, a handholding. now that's that's the fundamental core business now we've developed a bunch of niche services around executives and around business owners. Specifically myself, I handle a lot of the business owners and that can be anything from handling their M&A deals to the partnership agreements to group benefit solutions. So we really try to touch upon anything that involves money that causes them stress. Um, and we've even you know, reached out and created strategic partnerships with private clinics in the city or, um, or other resources to help them save money on cars or deal with their health in any way we can try to help them or use our network to leverage our network to, to help them. That's what we're trying to do. We really... T- I'm like, look, the only goal you should have once you're done with us is go out, earn the money you said you're going to spend, live the
0: lifestyle you said you're going to live, and we'll take care of the rest of it. Perfect. So let's go back to the, to the firm. So uh, three partners, seven people in total, and the sweet spot for you in terms of clients be- is between 1 million to 20 million. So this is the highly coveted, of course, high network segment in Canada. Right. Yeah. So how did you get uh, um, to this 1 to 20 million? How did you define this target market? Why, why 1 to 20 million?
1: Well, here's the thing. As our services continue to evolve and our credentials evolved, you know, the reality was that the person who's got $250,000 to invest and has a T4 every, uh, income every year, there's, you know, there's, we can help them, but we were really not leveraging our skill set and, and we, weren't, we were not enjoying it, but not as much as we were enjoying getting in the weeds of some of this other stuff. So a lot of it was a development of the business. I mean, if you look at our website and, our, and our, um, the accomplishments of, of the various partners and, and members of the firm, I mean, out of seven people, we have two CFAs and one CFA pending uh, between all of us. We have, I think something like, oh God, I lost count, probably 13 to 14 designations among seven people. And that number keeps on being added to, uh, plus we're members of countless organizations. So the skill set kept on increasing. The larger clients started seeing us handle more and more complex situations. And that led to referrals to more and more complex situations as well. So how did we get there? Really through a lot of, a lot of
0: effort and development is how we got there. Excellent. So 20, uh, so I, I fully understand that basically, as uh, the, the size of the client basically scales up, you can deliver more value, right? So it makes Absolutely. so much sense for you to basically go up. Uh, why why stopping at 20, um, 20 million?
1: I just, you know, what we've been approached with clients with sixty million. I mean, this is just the, the typical range we're seeing in terms of in terms of the range. So, I mean, yeah, we get more at the one to five million dollar range. We have a couple ten million dollar opportunities in twenty. So, I mean, I'd say that the the numbers above ten have been more of a recent development as we've you know continue to broaden our service offering. Um, when you start looking at the numbers north of ten to twenty million, there are a couple of Really, really uh, niche family office operations that have greater resources than we do. I mean, they they have a they'll have a ratio of something like one advisor per every five households. Uh, our current ratio, once we do some restructuring, is going to be about one one advisor per every sixty
0: households, sixty to seventy. So how does this break down into asset under management? What is your total asset? So
1: total assets under management right now are hovering somewhere around $200 million. Um, So, And that's with about 100 and a you know, core client base, not counting friends and family. who are still here. Um, you're really looking at roughly about 180 households we're looking at. So you do the math on that. You can see that the average is a little over 1 million. There are some people, you know, we, again, we didn't start at that standpoint. So do we have clients at the 500000 stamp uh, dollar mark, mark? Yes, we do, right? We definitely have that. Are we taking on new ones? No, we're
0: not. Absolutely. And, you know, this is still very, you know, highly coveted, as I said earlier, and uh, very competitive markets. So the next question, and there's a lot of questions I have right now, but uh, uh, the next question is, how did you... Uh, how were you able to be even successful competing with a very large firms, with uh, you know some of the private wealth uh, divisions? And you've been very successful growing your business. With uh, you know, of course, there is a a lot of firepower in terms of designations and knowledge, just sheer knowledge and experience that you bring. But um, how you were able to compete with large firms?
1: So the same way you take on any adversary that has more resources than you do. You don't attack them head on, you attack them in blind spots. So the reality is, is that if you look at every, what I'll call the larger banks and their private wealth offerings, they have a couple of blind spots that are massive hindrances to them. Specifically, they, their approach is always investment first, right? The person at the center of the relationship is always the investment advisor. And that investment advisor oftentimes doesn't really care about the financial planning process. The only thing they're really in there for is because they enjoy trading stocks or doing whatever investment thing that they're doing or being a portfolio manager or whatever they want to call themselves. And the reality is, is that when you look at especially people in this segment – What they need the solutions are often not. Oh, I need to try to beat the S and P by another one percent per year. The solutions are structural. The solutions are life planning. The solutions are all based in financial planning and tax planning. And frankly, yeah, what those firms will do is they will have the financial advisor at the center of it, and then they'll have the the financial advisor. Sorry, the financial planners who service the branch or a set number of advisors, or they'll have one financial planner. In their team but the reality is is that they're paying lip in most cases from what I've seen in the vast majority of cases they've largely played lip service to financial planning they do it because the client says they need it and they want a checkbox to be to be knocked off for the client but the second the financial plan deviates from what the portfolio manager or advisor wants to do the financial plan gets ignored right and frankly when we're what we're saying every time is that hey first of all, we're not even going to take a dollar of your money until such time as you've completed a financial plan. That's the first thing. We're not, you know, you can have, we've had clients who've had millions of dollars they wanted to transfer to us, and it took six months because their financial plan took forever. But you know what? We got it done, and we got the money over. And by then, we completely understand who and what they are versus what the average approach is, which is transfer me the money and I'll do the financial plan afterwards. Well, what is the message you're sending when you're saying that? The other thing is too, is a lot often, you know, we, we also charge up front for financial planning. Uh, we have a $5,000 first year onboarding fee that may go up actually next little while. But really what that does is it does a couple of things. It separates the wheat from the chaff. It basically anyone who's going to be very, very price sensitive immediately stops talking to us, which is fine to us because I don't want to be into a price negotiation every year. Mm-hmm. And then the other part, the other thing it does is it attracts, it, it creates value around the concept of the plan itself, right? because the typical response when they're shopping around is hey well i have this other financial advisor who is offering to do the financial plan for free to which my rebuttal is always really that's that's nice when is the last time you got something for free that was worth anything <laughs> and you know they they start laughing it's a joke right mm-hmm. but in reality it isn't right because by doing something for nothing you've diluted the value of it altogether and it shows how serious you and how valuable you see that as part of your process so so I encourage, and I talk to every advisor, I talk to them, like, how are you not charging for that work? Because it's a lot of work. And, and frankly, it's, it, especially with large, high net worth clients, that is where you learn everything about them. That's where you find the opportunities to, to optimize their situation. Not, not the, forget about optimizing their portfolio. That's going to happen. But simple things like just moving money around in order to minimize for taxation, you know, the application of advanced planning strategies, that's where you discover everything you need to know about them. And when you do that, you you basically open up the doors to any number of other possibilities that you can service them in a way. And, and there's and the other thing is because I'm not coming at it from an investment standpoint first, I I basically put myself in situations where other people have conflicts of interest. So for example, a classic one is someone will say, you know, the the financial planner or the insurance advisor at the big branch will say, Hey, you guys need this much money in life insurance, you know, you need this this much in life insurance. And by the way, here you can either do whole life to fund this thing or UL to overfund this thing. And the advisor looks at it and says, "Well, I don't want my
0: AUM going down,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? That is not a concern for me because I'm looking at the entire picture." Absolutely. So this is such a natural process uh to for you to build a firm, right? You're first of all, you're not competing directly, right? So you're 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 different, how you position yourself. You put financial planning right front and center. And the fact is that you may not even ask uh, to transfer their assets up to, you know, several months, maybe even half of a year later on. I mean, that's that's a clearly a, a sign uh or signal to advisor that basically you really care about planning. And of course, you charge for planning. So this is this is a great advice, and I just wanted to highlight that. All right. So you mentioned uh, something about pricing, and, and I want to get back to it because it's a big topic too, right? So uh, you mentioned the onboarding fee, the $5,000. Can you tell tell me a little bit more about pricing and how do you structure pricing within the firm, uh, also including those three different options from the low cost to sort of medium uh, mutual fund uh, portfolio and then uh, the latter one? Um so, the there's really when we look at our compensation, we only get it
1: from a couple of places. So, the first is the onboarding fee. Uh, that $5,000 fee was kind of um, arrived at through experimentation. And, you know, we started at 1000 dollars We looked at some situations whereby, okay, well, if you gave, you gave us the assets, we rebated. it. And we said, you know what, forget it. We need to attach a sticker price to show the value of this. And we basically looked at $5,000 as a point where people would. Kind of a psychological point where people would accept it, but not scoff at it if they basically saw value. And you got to think about this: if you are a high net worth individual, if you have more than a million, let's just say a million, two million dollars to invest, right? Mm-hmm. And someone is going to structure your entire life for five thousand dollars upfront. It's a bargain. Yeah, it's a bargain. When you look at the giant in the, in the real context of it, it's, it's a bargain. And 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 frankly, you know, the as we've been dealing with more and more complex cases, when you look at our hourly rate on that five thousand, it actually ends up being. Not enough, quite frankly. So there's been a lot of discussion about raising that to like seventy five hundred or something beyond that. That's something we will look at later. But you know, the fact is we can command that price from the marketplace for various reasons. One is because of our, you know, the first of all, it's it's a signal it signals a difference. Secondly, we have not only just not only can we claim that the financial plans are are worthy of that cost and show them examples of it, but we actually have international validation through awards showing that, hey, yeah. These are the guys you want to deal with for this kind of thing. Absolutely. So if they're going to have an ongoing relationship with us, it's an ongoing investment management fee. And that ongoing investment management fee is pretty straightforward. It's a sliding scale. Uh, we charge less the more you have, but there's a couple of differences. First of all, I don't care what you're using, ETFs, uh, mutual funds, or an SMA platform. I'm charging the same thing. So I'm indifferent. And I'm indifferent regardless of the mo- if you're the most aggressive portfolio or the most conservative portfolio. It's all the same. Uh, we do not negotiate one-off deals. That is not going to happen. Everybody pays the same schedule. So that's taken care of. Uh, this, this reduces that conflict. And one of the things we've also done is we also capped our fees, which is something that most people would shudder at. So we actually have capped our fees. We don't charge on assets north of $5 million. And that's simply to say, you know what? There's a certain point at which, you know, if a client comes in with $50 million. Okay. And I think I'm going to charge 50 basis points or a quarter, like there's a certain point at which the the sliding scale or the the percentage of asset model just stops making sense because now you're paying someone just preposterous amounts of money. What am I going to do to justify multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars per year? It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've capped that. Uh, in addition, we also, if we sell an insurance policy, there is no such thing as uh, no load insurance in this country. So we will get a commission on that, but basically we will prove why they need to spend X number of dollars on insurance with the needs analysis to, to show it's not just a number we pulled out of our butt, but here's the quantifiable, the quantifiable data showing that yes, you need to do this or you should do this. And Hey, this is going to cost you X. And here is what our compensation is going to be. Because frankly, People need to know that, especially given the size of the, some of these, these insurance compensations. So essentially, uh, we, we are upfront about all of that. Uh, we actually have taken a page out of the UK model, and we actually have our clients sign off at least once a year on what they're paying in fees. And when I say what they're paying in fees, it shows them not just our fee, but also the vendor's fee. So the ETF provider, the mutual fund provider, or the SMA provider, their fee, and is inclusive of trading account fees and HST. So they look at one all-in fee. And on more than one occasion, we've had clients come back to us or prospects come back to us and say, well, yeah, you're more expensive than the other guy. And I say, we say, okay, well, that's fine. We know we disclosed everything. Would you mind providing us with the quote you were given by the other person? And we'll find the same chicanery we always find. A, they didn't disclose account fees. B, they never disclose HST or they don't disclose the underlying cost of the investments that they're buying. So they may be, yeah, maybe they're tactically managing a portfolio of ETFs. But they've quoted a 1.5% fee for their services, quote unquote, all in. But they haven't included HST, account fees, or the cost of the underlying ETFs. So by the time you end up doing the math, we end up being the same price or cheaper than a lot of the competition, uh, and we're we're upfront about it. And and that conversation and the fact that they're not being upfront about it undermines their position
0: irreparably with that prospect. Absolutely. And I'm glad we covered all the pricing aspects or most of it, I think, right now, uh, because, I mean, some of the nuances that uh, came up here, for example, capping fees, I don't see this being very common in the industry right uh, right now. And I think that's a really good point that you brought it up. So uh, so that's a trend, if I may.
1: Sorry, that, that, if I may. That's a, that's a trend elsewhere. So what you're seeing in the U.S., the fastest growing model is the retainer based model. Right? So you know what you're paying. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. I have spoken to other high net worth advisors who basically feel that pressure. You know, we've seen fees come down across the board everywhere else with the exception of advisor fees. That is going to start happening shortly. And the way we looked at it too is as we started taking on multi-million dollar accounts that were bigger and bigger and bigger, we didn't want to become dependent upon that income and make it painful to cut later. So we realized, let's, let's, let's stop it here. One of the other things we're looking at as well in the future is to basically set up a retainer based model also for clients who a, either don't have the wealth to work with us, but maybe they have the cash flow because they have a fast growing business. Or maybe they're just real estate bugs and they wanna buy nothing but real estate but they could really benefit from our services. Well, we don't have a model for that now. But if we create a, real,
0: a retainer a based model, we can charge the exact same money and basically, end up providing that same service. Right, right, right. So uh, there could be many of this sort of different niche businesses with different pricing models. Uh, how do you approach saying, okay, this is what we, this is our core business this is what we are focusing on, and we're not sort of exploring other niche opportunities, right? Because it's uh, you know at some point there there's going to be too many of them. How do you think about that?
1: You know, being a good entrepreneur is knowing when to say no. Uh, and that is that is a challenge. I, I think, you know, when I talk about the creation of an opportunity or a, a retainer based model, part of me is also I've always got one eye in on the future. And the future I see is one of, of compression of advisor compensation. Um, I'm even hearing it from investment councils or investment managers that, you know, they'll get money from pensions and the pension will hand, or they already running them a hundred million. They get another 50 million or 20 million from the pension. The pension's like, wait a minute, you know, like how much more do I have to pay you guys to do your job? Like how, what, what changed here in the equation? So they're seeing pressure and we're going to see that. So, um, the reality is when you look at the focus of our, of our pricing strategy, we have basically kept it to one one vertical at this point, one pricing schedule. That's it. We will create a second option towards the future. And that's, that's pretty much it. The, in terms of other businesses to offer, see, here's the thing. Our model is not, I say we specialize in financial planning, but we're generalists everywhere else. And really we know, we know enough to know how to take care of about 80 to 90% of it, but we know when the 10% is beyond our realm and that's okay because this is why we partner with an extensive network of other professionals. Right. So I have, you know, an extensive network of lawyers in every capacity you can imagine. I have uh, the extensive network of various accounts we work hand in hand with. And you know what? Could I look at doing tax prep in-house? Yeah, I could do that. But frankly, I'm never going to be as good at at it as the other people I'm dealing with. So part of it is knowing what your core is. And learning to say no to things that aren't the core, but it doesn't mean you can't have a general understanding of how
0: everything works and be able to have a collaborative collaborative relationship with people who provide that service. Makes total sense, and you know what uh, you said something about uh, being an entrepreneur and, and looking at those different opportunities and and seeing uh, potentially other opportunities um, on the horizon. I, th- I think well, I think that's something that you know any of those niches potentially can turn into completely complete new business at some point, right? I mean, we don't know that, but you're you're as you said you're keeping an eye um, on, on on the future, right? And um, you're exploring those opportunities.
1: Yeah, and in terms of niches, we try to target. Like we we call I like to refer to our model as semi multi niche. Uh, we do have three different advisors, so we can target three different groups. And we've you know we've developed multiple niches that are essentially are at our core. And that, does that mean that if someone comes to us that isn't one of those niches but fits all our other criteria, uh, is is basically uh, going to be turned away? No, no. I mean I mean part of part of the the goal with this company is for us to be working with clients we enjoy working with. So. If they, you know, if someone doesn't fit my niche, but or any of the three, any of the three people's niches, but they are completely the right kind of client with the right kind of assets, but they're just not in the right industry, whatever it is. So be it. We'll take them on. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So, going back to your financial planning process, you covered this uh, uh, five-step process. Did you want to uh, go back to that and uh, uh, and and add anything to that?
1: No. I think I think uh, one of the things to add is simply that we look at the the process and every step in the process and everything we do as a distillation process. So, there is an inordinate amount of complexity uh, that goes into every one of those specific. Um, specific areas. But what we really do is we, we don't hit the client over the head with the complexity. In fact, we don't even want them to see the complexity. We want them to see the simplicity. So we will take all the information and all the data and all the academic uh, research that points to us as to how we are supposed to implement something. And we boil it down to a 10 minute presentation. So this is the crazy thing. So, I mean, clients will pay us $5,000 up front, but we don't hit them with a 200 page document. We hit them with a 30 page document, 23 page document. And even then we don't even give it to them at the beginning of the meeting. We give it to them at the end because during the meeting, what we are doing is we're presenting to them a presentation that takes no longer than 10 to 15 minutes. And by the way, there's, there's academic evidence to show that attention drops like a rock when you hit the 10 minute mark. So we try to wrap it up in 10 minutes if we can. That basically summarizes the findings in a very simple and straightforward way. So sometimes clients are almost, you know, they look at that and say, really is that it? is it that simple. Well, it's not we make it look simple, but there's so much that went into it. And by the way, if you want to see the entire report, we'll provide you with it. And I've only been asked for that twice and the clients lived to regret it because it was too complex for them to understand. But the executive summary was enough for them to understand. So at each step of the process, whether it's the financial plan, the investment plan, the insurance tax and estate plan, there's a tremendous amount of background work and tools that we developed to, to basically produce, to take a lot of complexity and define it down to simplicity and deliver
0: it in a very easily digestible way. Excellent, and I want to get to uh, get into tools and, and talk about tools, right? Because I very quickly noticed uh, in, in our conversations that you're really well technology versed and uh, you have really got uh, a great understanding of technology. So, um, can we talk about some of the tools you use to scale your 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 uh, your operation? Uh, so, pretty much everything from the website to client meetings, onboarding, planning, and so. On. Let's go through every single segment of of tools that, uh, <laughs> that you use. What is your technology stack? <laughs> you, you may live to regret that
1: question. Uh, <laughs> I have. I have a very large and extensive technology stack that can be overwhelming to many people. Uh, but it's largely based on, but the thing is, is that no one needs mastery of all of it. They need to understand the basics of what they need to do with what. So, um, going kind of through start to finish in a client experience, let's talk about that. So first off, um, let's just say a client visits our website. Our website's hosted by Squarespace, which literally for 20 bucks a month gives you a a, a website that anyone who can type into Word can update. So for that price point, it's like, how do you argue with that? So that's the first piece. Um, One of the things we're about to integrate into Squarespace, but we started integrating across the board with the company, is uh, ScheduleOnce. So ScheduleOnce is a tool for booking appointments. And that sounds easy enough, but you know what? I found that at one point, Speaking to my receptionist, she was booking, she was booking, she was spending about 60 to 70% of her time booking appointments and changing appointments and confirming appointments. As soon as I heard that number, I said, this ends. And I basically turned around, found a couple pro a couple different services and settled on schedule once. This tool will allow people to either A, book directly through our website, a uh, phone call at any time, it checks our calendars, sends them reminders, sends them text reminders, handles all of that. And then if we want to, if we want to book a meeting, basically all we're doing is we're firing off a link in an email that they click on, they see our schedules and they book to their own convenience. And that takes care of also multi-person bookings that they need to see two of us at the same time or phone calls or, or off-site meetings or virtual meetings. We can handle all of that through schedule once. So that is being rolled out more, uh, more critically now. Um, we've been on G suite for a very long time. Uh, we've been, you know, wherever possible, I try to do everything in the cloud because, I do not like uh, the entire concept of oh I left that on that computer uh, that no that, that's just
0: terrible. So G Suite has Google Apps, right?
1: Google, yeah, Google Apps for business. Uh, you know, Office 365 also has a great, very strong offering, um, but essentially, you know, that's that's our core right now. Um, Salesforce is our backbone uh, in Canada. We unfortunately do not have the options we have in the U- that they have in the US. Uh, the US has a bunch of dedicated financial advisor CRMs like Red Tail, Junction, and Wealthbox all of them great offerings. Uh, Salesforce is not just a CRM. If you buy it as a CRM, it is a very expensive CRM. Salesforce is a platform that can literally have almost anything built into it. So uh, the management software to basically allow us to actually do reporting in Salesforce,
0: track all our client uh, assets in Salesforce, uh, and do some really cool stuff in there. So you're using surface, not as only as a CRM, but as a platform to build your own internal suite of applications. That has been that is the that is the newer, more ongoing project. So that is
1: uh, I'm working with another advisor where we're splitting cost on this, but very much something we're looking at. Uh, they already have something called Financial Services Cloud that comes with a lot of basic functionality out of the box. You just have to plug in the right data feeds, and that's the challenge we're coming into. But uh, nevertheless, the goal is the goal. If this if this all works out would be to have all our data essentially stored in CR, in Salesforce, and then have that redistributed out to whatever, whatever tool we're using for whatever task we're using. So that is not there yet, but you know, talk to me in 24 months and hopefully I won't be as frustrated and I'll be further along. <laughs> we, we also use that for, um, for client communication, uh, sorry, for, for advisor, advisor internal office communication. So say so they have a tool called Chatter, which is almost like a social media communication tool I can basically communicate with staff members in, in regards to a client or a task that needs to be done without creating a task. So for example, if I wanted to, just, if I wanted to ask a question of like, hey, did you get to this to one of my, my associates? Well, I can, instead of sending them an email or an iMessage or whatever it is, I can actually go to the client it's specific to, like John Smith, go into Chatter and send to that client, hey, did you get to this for this client? And they will reply back. And there's, a, there's an audit trail then of that entire communication as well. So that works well. Um, we also use a, a tool called Slack uh, for, for communication, specifically around the managing of the financial plans. We haven't moved that into Salesforce yet, but we might. Uh, that allows us to deal with uh, communication of, of, or organize uh, communications around one specific, uh, very crucial task to us, which is the financial plan development. Um, we, we have a virtual PBX system for our phone system through a company called Fibernetics. So essentially, uh, we are off Bell. We do not pay everybody else. We're looking at a company called RingCentral, which would allow us to make it even more cloud-based and allow us to use the same PBX system regardless if it's a mobile phone or desktop phone. Um, all our meetings are either in per- uh, the, the virtual meetings, basically we're going to use whatever the client wants to use. So, uh, we typically use Google Hangouts or Google Meet, which is the corporate version, uh, for our, for ours, cause it's pretty easy. We've used Zoom in the past, but if a client wants to use Skype, we'll use Skype. I'm indifferent. As long as I can present, it's fine. Um, one of the things that, uh, clients often get kind of wowed by, and it's, just kind of bizarre to me because it's so basic to me. Uh, all our presentations are tip in in the office are done with large screen TVs hooked up to Apple TVs and we use iPads to stream to keynote and I will I even have a small iPod that I use as a remote control. So essentially Uh, I will be standing at the front of the room with the screen, iPad facing me with my speaker's notes in front of me, presentation on the screen, and I will flip through using my phone or an iPod uh, to just basically go between slides and clients are often wowed by that, but it's a very, very simple implementation. Nice. Yeah, we typically use Keynote for that just to find us a better presentation software. Um, One of the tools we've recently implemented that we're very excited about is something called Precise FP. This is an onboarding tool for collecting financial planning data. So it gives you, it gives you the very, it's a very simple way of putting together a, a questionnaire online. So all the financial planning now data is gathered there. So the client will put in their personal information there. They will upload uh, files to it. They will answer risk tolerance questionnaires, all of that. Uh, one of the things we will actually do is, you know, if a client wants to have, uh, they have, they have three choices when it comes to expenses. They can, well, right now it's two. We're going to add a third. They can either upload their, their, their QuickBooks files in which cave which you can download from any financial planning or any uh, bank website. And we will actually run it through QuickBooks for them and tell them where their money's going. Or they can just fill out a questionnaire as traditionally and tell us where it's going. So we do use Quick, QuickBooks or Quicken to, to make that happen. But PreciseFP makes it a complete digital online experience, handles all the reminder emails. So really it, it automates that part of the process. We will use Stripe for credit card payments, pretty straightforward, or we will also use for in-person credit card payments on the 5000 we will use Square, a little adapter that goes on your phone and you swipe once and it's done. Yep. Um, we are looking at a company right now called Honest. It is an online communication collaboration platform. Basically, it, uh, it will harvest data feeds from all over from all your different accounts, uh, just like a mint.com will, but it also allows you to share that information with any other professional you want, accountants, lawyers, uh, financial advisors, all in one secure area, or even family members if you want to do that. It also allows you to map out relationships and is a digital storage locker for, for data, and also a communication portal so you can tra- you can chat with, with the different people on that platform. So we're going to take a hard look at that in the summer. Um, to date, our risk tolerance questionnaires have been paper-based, but we are looking at Finometrica. They are online and they are academically backed, so that's pretty spectacular. We use multiple financial planning softwares because, quite frankly, we found that no one is perfect at every And they all target different markets. So uh, we, you know, the more advanced one that does all the corporate uh, and tax planning work, it handles about thirty percent of our plans. The rest of them are handled through the other one. Um, We have been using robo advisors with some smaller clients lately. When I say smaller, usually the kids of clients or even uh, people who have assets stranded in the U.S. Uh, So we've been using Wealthsimple as a partner, and their onboarding experience is fantastic. And I hope to one day use it for all my onboarding. Let's see what else do I have Uh, looking at uh, right now for insurance tracking. We used to use a company called um, Inforce pro, which unfortunately went private and stopped offering to the cut to the rest of the world. Hmm. Uh, But it was a wonderful tool and it would basically suck up data feeds from insurance companies, show you where your insurance policies were, remind you of uh, of renewals coming up and give you proposals for how to do that. We're looking at a newer one called life design analysis, which will basically do the same thing. Um, We built a number of custom presentation tools in, in Google sheets or Excel, if you want to do it that way. Uh, But essentially things like, like disclosures on, um, on fees or our, for example, probably the most sophisticated one is our risk management review. Uh, It's a 30 page report, but We input data into it and it will calculate the conditional probability of that event happening to a client, whether it be debt, disability, critical illness, you name it. It will also then calculate the needs analysis and turn around spit out to the, they'll tell the advisor once they're done the input, here's how much of everything this client needs. Um, So then we just go off and quote it and slap that into the proposal sheet. So it's uh, it's a pretty heavy (laughs) spreadsheet, quite frankly. Um, for managing our own internal team, we use a uh, fintech company called Humi. Uh, they basically allow us to onboard staff, monitor staff, track time off, uh, track payroll, all kinds of things. Uh, very handy. Um, what was the name of that? I haven't heard of that. Humi. H-U-M-I. H-U-M-I, okay. Yeah, there's another company can do the same thing called Collage. Uh, so very similar product. I'd say they have different feature sets, so you take a look at which one you want. Um, our bookkeeping is all done through a company called oh, through a, uh, an online platform called Zero. Uh, very, very awesome online accounting software. Uh, but we will. and This is the thing: is we, we encourage clients to use these software platforms for accounting and then grant us access to view it. So, whether it's Zero, Wave, or QuickBooks, uh, any client who's got an online accounting platform that is being regularly updated by their bookkeeper, we will basically be given access to that and then can provide them advice uh, based on what we're seeing in their corporation. So it's, it's a, it's not just an accounting platform tool. It's also a tool for advisor collaboration. Um, there's a tool I call that we use called Fathom HQ for doing kind of key performance indicators for our, for our business and for client businesses. So tracking business performance uh, surveys we do through survey uh, mail uh, newsletters we do through MailChimp, um, you know, I think I've, I've hit on, I mean, and then there's the traditional stuff, like we're using creases for investment tracking, but we hope to eventually have that done through Salesforce. Um, you know, we, we have to use the, the back office software we're given, which is the pain of my existence, but it is what it is. Yeah. I mean the, and then of course we have access to things like Morningstar and the more conventional things in the industry. So yeah, we have a lot of vendors. Uh, but the reality is, most of these companies are all tiny amounts that don't break the bank. And when you look at the efficiency gains you get from implementing solutions like this, they're, they're enormous. I mean, that simple example of my, my staff member who was spending 60 to 70% of her time booking, confirming, and changing meeting times. You know, look at that. Let's just say that I get that down to 20%, right? Look at the amount of time I have freed up. All that for a system that's probably going to cost me for three advisors and a bunch of options uh, less than $1,000 for the year like the productivity gains are enormous. So anytime I look at one of these solutions, I basically look at the very simple equation. How much time do I spend on this? What is my, or how much time does the staff member spend on this? What is their time worth? And what is this cost in comparison? And then what can I do with that free time that I've created for myself or for the uh, the associate? And, you know, no one wants to be bogged down by by minutia. No one wants to be, Spending 10% of their day booking meetings. No one wants to be spending 80% of their day working on paperwork. The more we automate these processes, the more we liberate these people to be able to work on much more
0: productive things to the business. Absolutely. And you know what? um, I think it may seem that this list of uh, technologies that you uh, have is huge, and it it is huge. And there's stuff missing too, but most of it. Especially for new advisors, uh, and I want to switch up this conversation to uh, to talk, talk about new advisors. Maybe some advice for for new advisors joining the joining the uh, the industry. Uh, the, the the truth of the matter is, you don't have to implement all this technology uh, right at you know day one. Oh God, no, no! You can start implementing one by one, and uh, you can get those incremental efficiencies. And as you said, and, and as you said, optimize your 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 office right. Absolutely. So, before we, uh, we have actually, before uh, any advice to, um, specific advice to new advisors, let's talk more about your process. How are you thinking about optimizing your office? Do you have a uh, set of, uh, a key or a cadence of meetings, for example? I'm really curious from the business perspective, how do you plan, how do you decide we're going to you know, optimize X versus Y versus, versus something else?
1: So it comes down to where are they spending their time, because no one wants to be doing monotonous tasks, right? So you look at where the pain points are, and you try to find, you know, you, you say to yourself, is there... A simple solution that exists already for this, and you know the, the the most recent and the best example I have for that is the is the receptionist booking meetings. Right, sixty percent of her time. You know, I do the math on what her salary is and how much that is. That is that is atrocious. And not only that, that's a poor use of her skill set because she's got a lot to, more to offer than just making phone calls. So again, getting that down to ten to twenty percent for a cost of a couple thousand dollars is you know let's call it one thousand dollars is completely worth it. So you got to look at that. So basically where are you struggling? Where are you finding pains? What is, what are you not enjoying doing? And traditionally the model has been, Hey, hire your assistant to do all the stuff you don't like. Well, no, your assistant costs X number of tens of thousands of dollars per year. Right. And just giving them inefficient tasks is not going to empower or empower your business or improve your margins in any way, shape, or form. If you have bodies in the room, in the office, they should be doing the most high-value things that they can possibly do. Now, unfortunately, certain things like paperwork are not "quote unquote" as high value as they as they could be. But their point is is that. If we can't get around those just yet, you have to work to get around everything you possibly can.
0: Absolutely, and to the meeting uh, times, the, the 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 productivity gains that you uh, got from it. I mean, I I'll fully second that. We are using sort of similar software; it's called Calendly, and that's been a game changer for us as well. And and I think the point about having an assistant and basically throwing them go uh, and uh, and asking them to to do all those sort of inefficient inefficient uh, uh, things that uh, take time basically and uh, and really take away from high value activities. I mean, it's just a waste of Time and effort, right? You're not solving a problem, you're transferring
1: a problem, right? Exactly. So it's 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 not really addressing the core underlying fundamental broken part of your system.
0: Right. Okay, Jason, uh, enough about technology for a second. We'll go back to it maybe later. But um, I want to talk about uh, uh, new advisors joining the industry, right? It it seems like there's a lot of things that you have to have, uh, uh, um, a lot of ducks you have to have in the role before you can start. But if you were, for example, uh, giving any advice to, let's say, uh, 20-some-year-old yourself, uh, let's say, um, what, uh, what would you do? How would you start in this industry today? So
1: first thing I, I tell them is, look, I know there's companies that will hire you straight out of university to be a financial advisor or financial planner. Do not do that. Just don't. The reality is you don't know what you're doing. They're going to give you a basic amount of training and you are going to be, for lack of a better term, the lowest common denominator financial advisor. You're going to be the person who has the bare minimum to get done what needs to be done, if that. What you should be doing is you should be getting experience and you should be getting experience by either working for a financial advisory team that exists already, trying to find a role like that, or an ancillary business within the industry. So mutual fund uh, support, sales support, or ETFs, like anything that, that there's a lot of industries that service this industry, get exposure to it that way. Work at a head office, do something. But do not just jump into the deep end with no experience on how to swim. It makes no sense. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I'll be honest with you, right now, the market is, especially in Canada, is super saturated and mature uh, beyond belief in in the traditional distribution methods. So you only really, in my opinion, you have one of two options if you want to become a financial advisor in this country uh, to do it effectively. The first thing is you either get on a succession path with another, with an older advisor, and we know the demographics are not great in this industry. You know, I think it's been the average age has been above fifty five for God knows how long now, is probably beyond that. And insurance is even worse. So the first step is get on a succession path, find an advisory team you can join, someone who's looking to exit at some point in the future, get a commitment to that exit, not a oh yeah we'll talk about it in five years, and then five years later it's like oh we'll talk about it another five years, like someone who's actually serious to start doing it. Uh, those are not easy to find, but they exist. So that's the second That's 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 one route. The second route is to do exactly what I said in terms of competition before. Do not compete in the same way. The fastest growing segment in the U.S. right now is the retainer based model, and I know people who have actually tried to, were were successfully implementing that in Canada. So that model looks different. It
0: looks it looks. Can you break it down for us? Because I think a lot of people. I think this is still very new in Canada here, and uh, so I think if you can break it down, it will be useful. It is basically frontier territory.
1: You don't forget frontier. It is literally like Columbus on the ship frontier territory in Canada. Okay. (laughs) So we've literally had a couple of explorers do this. So fee-based planning has existed for a while in Canada and, and, you know, with, with moderate success. I do see, I've seen people... Uh, sorry, fee-only planning, which basically means taking no compensation from any product whatsoever, um, has existed in Canada for a while, like I said, with moderate success previously. But I'm seeing some, especially younger advisors, who are really gaining steam with this entire thing. And um, the the, the ones that have basically done this the most, we have to to look to the U.S. for the examples of how this can be successful. And in the U.S., there's a, a group called the XY Planning Network, which has basically developed a model for how you cater to millennial generation X, generation Y clients who are traditionally ignored by our industry because they don't have the assets. They can't talk to me because they don't have a million bucks. Right. And going after them, you know, in a model that makes sense to them. So for example, the gentleman I know was a friend of mine who started this and he had the experience to, to become a financial planner before he did this. He basically has a virtual setup where there's no fixed office, but essentially, and he has people working for him already from their homes too. But what he does with the clients when they onboard is very straightforward. There is a thousand dollar first year upfront fee for developing the financial plan. And from there, there are three different packages for for, uh, ongoing service and they all have monthly amounts that get billed to the client's credit card. And essentially what they're paying for is pure advice and pure consultation. Now a couple of things. First of all, well, how is he implementing the solutions? Well, what he does on the investment side, this just gentleman, is he gives a, he basically goes the wealth simple and the client gets wealth simple for 35 basis points versus 50 basis points, which was what they would normally pay. So they're getting a, a break on the investments already. Uh, on the insurance side, there is no fee-based, sorry, there's, there, there's no zero uh, load uh, insurance uh, plan, but he does he has found in some insurance advisors that he thinks will, will basically implement ethically and they will collaborate on the amount, but he takes nothing in return for that. And the entire, the entire belief or the entire model is, Hey, you know, this is like a gym membership. You're going to use it to the full extent that you see fit, but it's always there for you when you need it. Uh, now of course people get nervous about the fact that, Oh my goodness, like, you know, client, Oh my goodness. Like the client could leave you at any time and you're not getting paid anything. Right. Well, yeah. But you know what, frankly, the client should be able to leave us at any time without paying anything beyond that. You know, the, the concept that oh we have their accounts so they're sticky is ridiculous. Um, you know friction is not a way to service clients or win business, it's a way to entrench yourself when you are fearful that you can't compete. So I've met so that's just the one example there. So he's taking a monthly fee. Uh, for author credit card. we call, I like to call it the Netflix model. It's something that the younger generations are used to. And it's something that if they don't find value in it, they will cancel it. So what does he do to provide value? He basically has regular checkpoints, coaching. It's much more of a coaching-based relationship than, than what people are more conventional. And it doesn't have to be a robo-advisor's solution. I know plenty of them who basically will refer, uh, plenty of uh, fee-based advisors or fee-only advisors who will refer to investment councils or will basically say, like, look, if you want to do this yourself, just buy this you know, here's the four ETFs you need to buy and rebalance, like give them the very simple, simplified model. It's not the best option, right? They'll try to sell the option where, you know, you have someone else manage it for you, but it's doable. And that model is newer, but I got to tell you, the people who are, are doing it, they're, they're busier than they can handle right now because you got to think about the scalability of that model. Let's imagine that you know he's a, because he has low overhead, no grid, uh, no physical office, does everything virtually with software. You know his operating costs are a fraction of any big broker operating downtown, right? So can he deliver a similar service with similar results uh, or better, and a better experience mm-hmm. than uh, compared to a traditional broker downtown for a fraction of the price? Absolutely, he can. I mean, do the math. You get you get you know, let's call it $200 a month, for example, right? You get a hundred households paying you $200 a month. You are in great
0: shape absolutely i see the huge benefits of this model and i see there's a lot more opportunity i think there's a lot of especially younger advisors that i see that are looking at this approach because it's it's much easier it's i think it's using the tenant that you just mentioned earlier right do not compete where uh, where you're weak compete where you can be strong and if you can be efficient if you can leverage technology as you are for example in your business at the, uh, right now and deliver true value not to walk to not to try to lock client into something uh, that they cannot uh, recover from uh, or they have to be stuck with you uh, but if you can actually deliver value so they can see the value, I mean, there's some, such a positive spin on the business, right? You have referrals, you have uh, online reviews, and, and the business almost grows on itself. And really, uh, uh, there is a way to, for example, to stir-step uh, yourself to sort of, um, uh, to, to let's say, manage assets, right? This could be the first step. Uh, for you. And then later on, you can, you can maybe uh, graduate yourself to uh, more advanced sort of models.
1: Absolutely. You could always, you know, use that as the parlayer, the, the introduction to eventually building out your own investment council in the future. But the reality is you look at the traditional model, which is here's a phone, go make a living. We'll give you a, we'll give you a tiny income. And by the way, you're gone in 12 months. If you can't, if you can't live up to it, you know, like it's, you know, we're literally, all we do is we don't train people. We just throw them to the wolves and ask them to survive with a stick right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know what, is it any wonder that we have turnover ratios of, of new entrants to the market into this, into this uh, industry of like 90% in some cases? Is it any wonder we have cynical, you know, think about the, the, the cynical view that some people have, that many people in the public have about our industry? Well, you know what, we've designed incentive systems that are solely based on selling, right? And then once you've been selling nonstop, and we all, don't get me wrong, we all have to sell to survive, right? But when you basically create a system where the only way to survive is literally to make the next sale over and over and over again, all you're doing is you're putting people on a treadmill that they're never going to get
0: off. Absolutely. That's the truth. So so there's some uh, systemic issues in the, uh, in the Canadian financial services industry. And how do you see those different trends? Uh, and what are the most important trends that you see uh, globally right now? So...
1: When, when you, I, I highly, highly, highly encourage every financial advisor to stop taking a Canadian-centric viewpoint to their world. My eyes were opened dramatically when I won the first uh, Global Financial Planning Award because with that came a trip to the Financial Planning Association Conference in the U.S. And that's the largest association of financial planners in the world. Um, And also it, it also is home to an international contingent comes there every year from from countries around the world, including Brazil, the Netherlands, Russia, India, Australia, you name it. I met advisors from all over the world. And you start having these conversations and you start noticing, hey, you know what? things are really similar in terms of the challenges we're facing, right? Everybody's, you know, all these people were worried about disclosure and new regulation and pressure. So we're all getting it around the world. But the sad thing is, is that Canada has, I, in my opinion, drastically fallen behind many of the world leaders in this, in this space. Uh, Things are definitely more clear in the U S and the, are more defined in the U S and the UK and Australia and Canada. We haven't even started a lot. We've we've had, you know, CRM two as a starting point, but big deal. We are way behind. So, Um, The bigger trends are definitely what we see here, a push towards fee-based or or basically the ban of embedded compensation altogether is the big trend around the world. Um, And that is something that is eventually going to happen here, whether you want to believe it or not, because Canada is not going to be the last one standing on that. Uh, You also see a big push towards fiduciary responsibility or best interest stands, how you want to define it. And that discussion has started here, but we're nowhere near finishing that discussion, Uh, which when you think about it is absolutely absurd. I mean, if you ask the average person Uh, Do you think that your advisor has to operate in your best interest? The first thing they would say is, well, yeah, there's got to be some sort of law that says that. And the answer is no, Mm -hmm. right? Unless you're held to it by one of the licensing bodies of the different designations you have, like the CFA or the RFP, then there is no obligation, which is just atrocious, quite frankly. Um, So... That's, the other, that's another big trend. Uh, you see a bigger trend in technology across the board trying to not, not necessarily, yes, compete with advisors, but also that are, that's trying to, what's the better term for it, trying to enable their businesses. Uh, in Canada, because we are largely controlled by five major banks and independents make up less than 25% of the marketplace, we've been held back. The U.S. is about 75 percent independent, and because of that, the ecosystem that exists down there is far more robust and far more developed than anything we've ever seen here. I mean, at the FPA conference, I was literally astonished. I was walking to the exhibitor floor, and you know, I had a choice of like 12 different custodians with which to hold the investments. If I was in the U.S., I could get four different you know industry-built CRM uh, tools that, <laughs> that 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 had APIs that plugged into everything. I had different tools that uh, you know, literally, you name it, compliance. You can get Outsource compliance for five thousand dollars a year. Um, you could get uh, you know three three different options for for risk modeling, um, five different financial planning softwares, and that was just the major ones. Like the number of you could literally go there, start from zero, and set up your own RIA, Re- Re- registered investment advisor, in the U.S. for less than twenty thousand dollars starting cost, and be off to the races with, with with software as good as anyone else. And it was you know it was so eye opening to me. And then having the conversations around the world of what's happening. I mean, you know, look at some of the changes. So the so w- w- one little tidbit of knowledge. This one, this one is one that burns me to no end. Um, there, are several countries have banned embedded compensation, and one of which, uh, frankly, uh, is not one you would think, and that's India. So we are still having an argument about that in Canada, and India has moved forward and is further ahead on on this type of regulatory change than we are, which I find shameful. Uh, Because frankly, we should not be a laggard in the world. We should be a leader. Most interestingly, we've all heard stuff about the fiduciary rules in the U.S. and changes in the U.K., but the most highly regulated market in the world right now, when it comes to this is is Australia and they're really showing just how serious they are with this stuff. I mean, they are, they are about to pass a law on advisor competency that says by the end of the year, if you want to call yourself a financial advisor, you're coming into this business, you want to be a financial advisor. You have to a have an undergraduate degree in business or economics, B have at least one year work experience, C have a licensing criteria or designation that is equivalent to a CFP or better. Uh, and then you have to subscribe to required continuing education and an ethics uh, code as well. So that all sounds fantastic because, frankly, that's what we should do because that's what other professions do. They have they have the required undergraduate business, uh, required undergraduate education. They have the certification exam. They have the, the work experience portion. And they have the ongoing stuff. So like an accountant, a doctor or a lawyer, whatever it is, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we need to aspire to. We don't have that in Canada. Now, here's where Australia is, well, for lack of a better term, super hardcore, okay? So that's for new advisors. Existing advisors are not getting grandfathered. If you do not have the CFP or equivalent, you have three years to get it. If you do not have an undergraduate degree, you have six years. They are literally making people go back to university. And frankly, the stance, when you think about it, makes perfect sense. They're saying, you know what? We don't care that only 25% of advisors meet these criteria. We don't care if you guys got to find new jobs. We have to work hard to keep your job. What we care about is that the population that you are servicing believes you to be experts at this type of thing that you're holding yourself out to do. You need to have the bare minimum criteria in order to ensure that you actually do have the knowledge to be able to do what you say you do. And that is more important than you guys keeping your jobs. What's more important is the public. So it's
0: hard to argue with that stance, quite frankly. Right. So- I can resist us ask uh, asking a question, why we're so slow in adapting those regulatory changes in Canada here? Is, do you think there will be a tipping point? I mean, I don't want to talk for about it for another half an hour just on this topic, right? because there's so many things I want to talk about before we uh, we wrap up. but um, do you think there will be a tipping point in Canada? do you, do, do you think that there will be something uh, there will be a catalyst to basically accelerate those uh, regulatory changes?
1: So it's a multi-part question. Uh, I'm going to state that the following is opinion, not fact. Uh, and <laughs> it's, it's, viewed, it's it's tainted or, or it's, it's basically from the skew of, of my standpoint as an independent advisor. So why do we have this problem? For a super large country of 36 million people, 36 million people is not a lot. I mean, that's fewer people than I think the state of California. We definitely have less wealth than the state of California. Um, and we are geographically diverse. I mean, the reality is, is that we have... And we, we by nature, due to our size, are going to lend ourselves to being concentrated unless regulation prevents it from being so. And as such, when the when the when the four pillars fell, uh, the banks began aggregating power, and they are in control of seventy five percent of the marketplace. Um, and banks, in my opinion, are about one thing when it comes to running their business: uh, minimum viable product at the lowest possible cost to maximize dividends. That's it. Right. So you're seeing that happen now more and more so because first of all, their grids are atrocious (laughs) for an advisor. It's insane. Uh, But in addition to that, you're seeing that uh, some of the, they're, they're preventing, they're, if you're a broker working at those firms, you cannot take on accounts below $250,000 now. That has to be pushed down to the bank where the profit margins are greater. Uh, also, if some, I've actually heard that some of them, if you bring in accounts above a certain threshold, that that has to be referred over to the investment councils and you can't even run them. So they are squeezing the advisor base to the point where, frankly, if they could, they would wave a magic wand, make everybody an employee, and pay them a heck of a lot less. Um, but the problem is, is that because we're so largely controlled by banks, how many people entering this business get any exposure to the independent side whatsoever? They have no clue. I mean, I go to these conference, I go to these these conferences or sessions in the in, uh, across the city and across the country, and you know everybody walks in with their little lapel pin from whatever bank they work for, and guess what? There's only five of them, right? They can immediately find who works at the company that they work for, and you know they start. You know, the question comes up well, who do you work for? Well, I'm independent through um, Investment Planning Council. They look at me dumbfounded. They have no clue. They don't know. They can't name an independent to save their lives in most, uh, most cases. Maybe they can name a, you know, the larger ones like Richardson GMP or Canaccord or, or Raymond James, but they only recognize like for like. They recognize models that are like theirs, right? And they don't understand why you would ever leave the safety or the rec- brand recognition of a large bank, right? But meanwhile, if you're entrepreneurial, you're being crushed by that. Right. If you look at there's there's models out there. Like I said, there's the example of that retainer based model I just gave you. There's there's you know there's independent dealerships that will take like 15 cents on the dollar as opposed to the 50 cents on the dollar. There's now independent dealerships that will have flat B service arrangements. So the reality is is that we don't have enough exposure for the independent option. People don't even know that it exists in many cases, or they think that they're they don't understand the economic benefits of it. They don't expand they don't understand the freedom of it. They don't understand that it is a viable option as compared to working for one of five different logos. And that's a problem, right? And that's one of the things that needs to change is the awareness of that option needs to change. Now, is there going to be a tipping point? Is there going to be a change? Well, first of all, um, there's a different, there there is in two different ways. One, uh, from the regulatory side, I'm a big believer that what we have right now, and the reason we're being held back is regulatory capture. Uh, you have the banks and the insurance companies who will not let things change. And you also, unfortunately, have an industry association that is largely composed of people who are not interested in change either. So the question is, who drives for change? Well, hopefully that changes in the next little while, uh, but we'll see. But the reality that's going to happen is is that you're going to see international pressure. By the time we're done having this conversation about banning embedded compensation, the U.S. may actually be predominantly retainer-based. Because that is the major trend I see happening when I when I go down there now. When I go down there, they're all everybody has to specify whether or not they're fee based or fee only. And the tipping point to fee only retainer based is going to happen because I see it happening with all their independents very very quickly. So I think it's going to be external pressure as opposed to internal. Unfortunately, largely because of the composition of our of our structure. Um, that being said, is there a tipping point on the independent side versus the bank side? I think that that tipping point is is, is slowly starting to happen. And it's starting to happen because a new advisors coming into the business who want to survive in something other than the big five banks and not, you know, work for an advisor who may eventually give them their business, they are going to have to start to look at options like I discussed, right? They have to start looking at, at fee-only models. Not only that, the ecosystem is starting to build out. So you have fintechs that we can piggyback on that basically are going to enable our business in so many ways. I mean, right. you, can, you can completely, if you wanted to be a financial planner and just do everything through Simple or Nest Wealth, you have that option. Right. And you can do that very efficiently, very well for a very low cost. So, you know, you look at the, you know, and well, simple one of the things that people don't realize is they own their own custodian. They own a company called Share Owner Canada and they are automating that beyond belief. So you're now looking at efficiencies on, a, on a, an independent custodian that are going to. Get an experience that 's going to be far beyond what the banks can give, so the tool set that is being built for independent advisors is increasing very very quickly and very very well and that 's something i 'm very excited about in my own practice but the awareness factor has to happen that 's a challenge now one of the other things that is an interesting change is the fact that you know complain I love when people complain about millennials, but to me they 're going to be a safe grace to us because their their brand loyalty is very different they don 't care about the major banks they care about what someone's going to do for them. Right. And they're much more likely to work with independence than they are to work with a major bank. So they're that shift in what people are willing to do. Because before, you know, I still have the older clients who basically are always very concerned about CIDC insurance or, or CIPF insurance or, you know, and, and things like that. And the concept of major banks going bankrupt and, and you know, it's basically wanting to deal with only the large, most secure companies in the world in, from there, in their mindset, the younger ones, when you basically point out to them, hey, we have the same deposit insurance, we use a custodian,
0: like all this other stuff, so really there's no difference, they're completely open to it because they care more about the service level than the security. Okay, you mentioned FinTechs, and this brings me to FinTech Impact. So yes. you've recently launched the podcast, or it will be launched by the time we air this episode, probably, so can you tell us a little bit more about the podcast?
1: Yeah, so uh, this the entire thought point for, I've, I've wanted to do a, a, a podcast for a while, and just never thought there was something that I... Um, That I could provide unique value in. So I just always in the back of my mind. And then late last year, just out of random conversations I was having with people in the industry. I started getting asked to speak at advisor conferences on technology and uh, without even trying. Uh, and I, at first my response was, well, why me? And then they would be like, well, no one's doing what, like look at your tech stack. Like no one's doing what you're doing. No one's building these things. No one's doing all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I guess I can talk about that. And then, you know, then other ones started saying, you know, were the conversation we had about blockchain, would you be able to speak on a panel about that? I'm like, yeah, I guess I can if you can't find someone better. And so initially, you know, I was very humble about it not realizing that I kind of, I stumbled, I kind of stumbled into a niche. I stumbled into a niche of someone who is a technophile for lack of a better term. Someone who loves technology and is very up to date on it and loves to implement it. within his own practice and someone in the financial advisory space. And in talking to people I knew in the fintech space, they all said the same thing. Like, yeah, you, you, you're like at the top of that level. So yeah, you should totally do a podcast. Um, and and really the the other thing about it was it was a natural parlay for me because I have a very curious mind so a lot of times I would come across a, a, a fintech and be like oh wow like I'm gonna contact these people so you reach out to the the founders typically I would send off an email to the founders and say hey you know like I really like what I saw here you know I'd be interested to talk to you guys about it and they they are so used to advisors who don't understand technology that when they come across me, they love it. They, they love being able to have deep conversations about their product market fit, what they're trying to accomplish, how what kind of technology technology trends they're going to be able to piggyback off of. So I developed the, quite the network. And so when when I got started getting asked to do these conferences, it, it basically was a natural transition to say, hey, let me, let me share this information with people. I'm having these conversations with fintechs anyway. Why don't I start recording this and start pulling back the veil of what this world is about? Because... All too often, I go to these conferences and advisors are terrified, like literally terrified or, or borderline angry about things like robos. Like, and there's no reason to be. Like I, I literally, so just to share a story. I was at a conference that will not be named. And um, there was a presentation on robos. And, you know, the first four advisors who got up started making comments about, oh, these people don't care about you. We care. Like, you know, we're going to be out of jobs. And, like all this, all, all this just negative venom that was being spewed. And I finally put up my hand and I said, look, how, let me ask you a question. How many of you have opened a robo-advisor account? And I think it was like a room of like two to 300 advisors. I was the only hand that went up. To which I almost lost it. I was like, look, you know, this is your problem, people. You are, you are sitting here in judgment, in you know, venomous judgment, just, just basically talking about what's wrong with this. And none of you have even looked at it. Like, this is the problem. All ter- you are all terrified of technology. You fail to embrace this stuff and, and learn about it before you, you just basically dismiss it. And that's wrong. I, cha- I, 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 said, even, I even challenged them all. I basically said, <laughs> I, I challenge all of you uh, during the break to download one of the, one of the robo-advisor apps and set up an account. I know if you have a Blackberry, you can't do it, but if you have a Blackberry, shame on you (laughs) because you shouldn't be on that platform because it's not, it's not a valuable platform anymore, but open one up, take a look at it and then come and tell me what's wrong with it. So I think I, I think I pissed off about half the people in that room. And I think the other half came up to me and started asking questions about how I implemented my own practice. Right? So I realized that, People are terrified by this because you know, anytime your, your income stream is threatened, you're terrified of that. So my entire intention with this is, hey, let's have these conversations. Let's, let's see what the impact of these companies are going to be. And, and let's, let's have a, com- a dialogue about how they can either enable us or how you know we can compete with them.
0: And typically, this will be enabled, right? I mean, just a lot of people don't realize how much impact, how much leverage technology can help them to basically build a better uh, practice, build a better business.
1: Absolutely. And here's the reality of of Canada. Canada is not a big country. And because of that, to get to scale as a standalone company is incredibly difficult. I mean, well, simple as like $2 billion and they control something like 70, 80% of the market right? That's, you know, that's, and they spent a lot of money on advertising and you know what? They, they will probably over time because they have a rich, rich daddy who gives them money, be able to build that business into a scalable, you know, standalone product. But re- regardless of that, I mean, you look at that, the other players in this space are ones who are working with advisors as well. Like, I mean, Nest Wealth basically works with just about anyone who's willing to work with them, rightly so. Well, simple, will try the same thing, but a lot of them don't want to work with them. Uh, and then on, in addition to that, you have, um, you know, you have other robos who basically are just distribution models for existing products, like BMOs or, or what's the other one, Wealth Bar from Nicola Wealth. So the reality is, is that very few of these robos are going to be able to make, a, are going to be able to, or robos, or a lot of these fintechs, they're going to need us. They're going to need the
0: advisor space. So when people want to hear more about those different fintechs, what, where they can find it? What's the URL for your podcast?
1: Yeah. So the URL is fintech, uh, sorry, fintechimpact.co. Unfortunately, the .com is too expensive. So .co, uh, C-O. You can visit there now and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, The podcast, I'm hoping to launch it uh, late March. And uh, we already have about eight or nine interviews in the can. And I'm very happy with the the, the results thus far. And uh, it's been very diverse. I'm not keeping this solely to Canada. I've also spoken to fintechs in Australia and the U.S., and hope to keep it on an international spin so that i 'm not just bringing um, bringing forth fintechs that are going to enable in Canadian business but they get people an understanding of what 's happening around the world and oftentimes we will we will sidetrack uh, heavily off of fintech and talk about the industry in general and and challenges we see and I think, I think honestly. You know, I should almost have named it Fintech Impact views from views on advice from around the world because we, there's a lot of discussion about issues in Canada and and how things are different elsewhere and how we can follow or
0: the lead of other of other nations. Perfect. So FintechImpact.co not .com, co and we will link it in the show notes so we'll have that. So Jason, as uh, before, we wrap up. Uh, this podcast is all about growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners?
1: So my, my thinking tends to be a lot of skate where the puck is going. Uh, and it is uh, just like I did with my practice. Do not try to do the same thing as people with deeper pockets. Do not try to be mass market and beat the banks. It's just not going to happen. What you need to do is you need to basically do a couple of things. First of all, move away from a sales culture. People much prefer to be advised and sold. And that's the reality of it. And and be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I frankly, if I was starting from scratch, I would probably from today right now be starting on a retainer based model. I think that is the way of the future. I think that is something that every advisor is going to to look at. I have talked to countless advisors who've talked about capping their fees out of concern for the pressure that they're seeing. So do not develop the, do not work to develop a practice of yesterday, work to develop a practice of tomorrow. And you're not going to do that unless you take ownership of your business and treat it like a business. So be an entrepreneur.
0: Wonderful advice. Jason, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you?
1: best place to reach us uh, is at woodgate.com uh, my email is jason.pereira p e r e i r a at woodgate.com but it's also available on there and frankly just google me and you'll find me somewhere
0: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful jason thanks for coming on the show you've shared a lot of practical and actionable advice that listeners can get value from my pleasure bye bye And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.